Since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, calls for police reform are growing louder across the country. There's a lack of transparency, accountability, and fairness. The police have become too militaristic. Something needs to change within the current police department. And police unions, long considered untouchable, find themselves under the microscope like never before. Activists say unions are a big part of the problem. These unions have police unions. The union should not be a barrier to stopping police brutality. There are thousands of police unions around the country, each with slightly different rules. And they're a critical part of protecting officers' rights. But now, they're being accused of blocking reforms and upholding systemic racism in policing. And some cops are pushing back. Everybody's trying to shame us into being embarrassed about our profession. On this episode, we take you inside police unions and explore how they could help or hurt police reform. We hear from a former cop about the relationship between officers and their unions, especially when things go wrong. The first thing they tell you is don't say anything. Don't speak to no supervisors. Don't speak to anybody at the scene. If you got involved in the shooting, shut up. Don't talk to nobody. We explore the evolution of police unions and how they became so powerful. Police unions were able to present themselves as representatives of law and order, as protecting society from rising crime. And that puts them in a pretty strong political position. And talk to the president of the Memphis Police Association, one of the few black union heads in the country, about the push to overhaul unions. Do we want them to just be a, a, a punching board or a target for any and everybody. They have to have a spokesman who is allowed the ability to be able to advocate for them. From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm Amna Nawaz. I always describe the job of being a police officer as a very honorable one, if done the right way. Um, It's such a great feeling to be able to help people in their most trying times. In 2013, Corey Pegues retired from the New York City Police Department after a 21-year career. During his time as a cop, he patrolled some of New York's most violent neighborhoods. i got to say, in a city like New York, over the years that you were a cop, you must have seen some stuff. Did did I see some stuff? Of course, I saw a lot of stuff. (laughs) He wrote a book about that stuff. It's called Once a Cop, and he details his path from dealing drugs as a teenager in Queens to his rise through the ranks of the NYPD. Over a recent video chat, Piggies told me about the incredible stress of police work and the inherent danger of the job. Cops got to always shoot 100. And when I say 100, meaning when you come to work, You don't have a chance to shoot 99% because that 1% could cost somebody their life. That, Pegues says, is the main reason police officers need union representation. He still gets his benefits through the union. Do you remember specific times when the union was able to get you things that you thought you needed as a police officer? Oh, yeah, the union helped me. I I always used to get in little little stuff around the precinct so i would have to call a union and it could just Wait, be what does work. that mean what does little stuff so mean? It, it could just be work performance stuff like be, having an undesirable assignment which i thought that you know it wasn't fair to me and you would call the union like i remember what the nine millimeters was a big deal we was when i was a cop we had 38s Pegues is talking about the guns that police officers carried here he says at the time cops needed quicker and more powerful weapons because we were saying, hey, all of these shootings in the streets, 
the perpetrators are carrying nine millimeters, but the cops not having any. And the unions was able to negotiate for us to get nine millimeters. That was huge. But the union services go far beyond advocating for new guns. If, for example, you're an officer and you find yourself the subject of an investigation, Pegues says the union is your first call. They don't even tell you to call it the lawyer. <laughs> call your union delegate. Your delegate will call the union and get your lawyer. That's the first thing they tell you. Do not talk. So even during an investigation with an internal affairs, when they're sitting there recording, as you're speaking, like the lawyer interject, no, he's not, he or she's not going to answer that question. Uh, we'll come back there, take you out of the room, maybe go over the scenario with you again. This is what you should say, you know, to get everything precise so that you don't get in any further trouble than you're already in. And this gets to one of the main critiques of police unions, that they often help shield officers from accountability in alleged misconduct cases. Do you remember guys that you worked with that you thought, this guy should not be a police officer? Guys that the union fought to keep on the job. Did you have instances like that? Of course. I'm telling you, you were walking a precinct your first day and within a week, everybody's telling you, oh, you'll notice you don't want to work with this guy. So now you're telling the sergeant when they say, hey, you got to work with Pegues. Like, Sarge, look, my stomach is hurting today. I, I need to go home sick. Like, you would say things like that. You would do that you know, to get out or, of working with someone? Right. Like, my wife just called me. that We got an emergency. We got a flood in the house. Just to get away. So everybody's getting away from this hothead. Everybody knows that this is a hothead. And you just learn to work around it because you know that guy's not going anywhere. Yeah, you know that he's not going anyway. And one of my first arrests, I arrested this kid and I was on foot post. I needed a car to transport him. I called the car. Two guys came. And while I'm on the side writing in my, my memo book, they start beating him up. I thought the guy was Houdini. He got out of the cuffs, but they was beating him while he was cuffed. So I'm like a real rookie. And I'm, I call a sergeant. The sergeant came to scene because sergeant got a verified arrest. I told him what happened. I said, yo, man, these guys, I mean, he just beat this guy up. He was cuffed. And so, like, I told the sergeant, like, yo, if this happens in front of me again, I'm calling the internal affairs. Like, I had the number locked in my head to this day. You know, so if you take a stance, then but when you take a stance, then you have to deal with people not wanting to eat with you, people not wanting to talk to you, they not invite you to their bar mitzvahs, and so on and so forth. Well, let me put a hypothetical to you. We're talking about all of this right now because of the way that George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, right? And I guess if you had to think about it, if something like that, if something like what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis happened in New York when you were on the force, how do you think that would have played out, especially when it comes to the union? In my experience in New York City police unions, they would have staunchly backed the police officers and maybe, maybe said something to the effect of, let's let the investigation take its course. This is the first time that I've seen unions slightly saying that this George Floyd thing was wrong. I mean, if you, you look at the George Floyd thing, the first report that came out of Minneapolis Police Department was he was resisting arrest. It, and for the life of me, I can't believe that with cameras going all over the place, why they would even put that out. So the problem is today in policing is prior to this thing in my hand. Piggies is pointing to his cell phone. Cops was able to control the narrative. 
you know, somebody gets shot and killed by police. We go in the back room. They make the story. We say, we getting ready to go in front of the cameras. This is the story. Let's go. But they can't do that no more. This thing in my hand has changed the game. But you still have the culture is still the culture. Defend, defend, defend. And all America wants is you to tell the truth. Transparency. It's okay to say that like a cop messed up and killed somebody. It's all right because there's millions of cops. But to constantly saying every cop is right in every situation, that drives the stake between the black and brown community and the police. A lot of the conversation now is around reforms and accountability, right? Like, how can we make sure that police officers around the country are held accountable in the right ways? There's transparency. In all your time there, did you see the union push back on the kinds of reforms that you thought maybe we should allow this one to go through? Well, I haven't seen any any change in my 21 years of service and now maybe 28 years of being in policing where the union didn't push back. It's almost like... It's almost their job to push back at everything, every and anything. And it's all to get leverage for the next contract. They're constantly pushing. I haven't seen the union agree to anything without using it as a negotiation tool. And that's what unions do. We requested a comment from the New York City Police Benevolent Association and didn't hear back. Police unions have long held a unique and powerful position in this country. And to understand why, you have to go back to when they started. So, should we talk about unions? Yeah, let's get to it. Stephen Russian is a law professor at Loyola University and an expert in police accountability. He's tracked the rise of police unions in the U.S. for years. And I wanted to talk to him about how police unions emerged as the force they are today. Police unions were actually one of the uh, last professions to kind of enter the world of collective bargaining, in part because of the strikes in Boston in 1919. So to go back in time, uh, there was a time in which officers in Boston were, in fairness, uh, had legitimate complaints about the way they were treated. Uh, Low wages, long hours, forced to do things like pay for their own uniforms. Um, And facing those kind of limitations and demanding reform, they went on strike. Uh, In response to them going on strike, there was significant civil unrest. Um, And for a long period of time afterwards, there was strict limits upon the ability of police officers to uh, to collectively bargain. Um, So we actually didn't have Uh, collective bargaining for law enforcement for a substantial portion of American history until relatively recently. Um, And today, police unions are one of the strongest sectors um, of uh, the labor movement in the United States. Russian says that unions gained strength during the tough-on-crime movement of the 1980s and 90s. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. And they found allies on both sides of the aisle. Today I'm introducing the uh, Police Officers' Bill of Rights Act of 1991. Here's Joe Biden back when he was a senator in 1991. Mr. President, this bill is aimed at protecting the rights of law enforcement officers uh, against the uh, injustices that occur to them while they are attempting to help us. Here's President George H.W. Bush in 1992. I'm delighted and honored to accept this most prestigious endorsement here today as the preferred presidential candidate of the National Fraternal Order of Police. When you say they're one of the strongest of the unions as a body, how, how, how are they different from other labor unions? 
you can make a pretty good argument that police unions are uniquely politically powerful. Um, I think you can make that argument because they have historically been able to coalesce support on the left and on the right politically. On the left, they're representatives of public service unions, uh, something the left generally supports. On the right, they're often viewed as representatives of law and order. For decades, police unions and their political action committees have poured millions of dollars into elections at every level, backing both Democrats and Republicans. For example, one New York City police union has spent more than a million dollars on state and local races in just the last six years. So this kind of puts them in a unique position relative to uh, other unions across the country. Um, Even as we've peeled back some of the collective bargaining rights for other Uh, professions, police unionization remains strong um, across the country. As an example of this, you can look at uh, what happened in a place like Wisconsin. Wisconsin! Like nearly every state across the country, uh, we don't have any more money. Back in 2011, former Republican Governor Scott Walker slashed collective bargaining rights for public sector employees in Wisconsin. But police unions were exempt. And Russian says they remain strong across the state. I think the other way that they're different is that, um, you know, police officers serve a really unique role in society. Um, There's no other profession where we give state authority to carry a gun, a badge, and the ability to utilize deadly force. So whenever we say that officers are able to negotiate as part of collective bargaining, the disciplinary procedures, the procedures that we use to, you know, decide how we can oversee and respond to misconduct, we're not talking about the same type of misconduct you would see in other, you know, settings for other public servants. Uh, We're talking about the kind of misconduct that can lead to, on average, over a thousand people killed at the hands of law enforcement every year. Because collective bargaining is so critical to all of this, Russian has studied hundreds of contracts between police unions and cities across the country. How these contracts are written, he says, can make it really hard to hold police officers accountable for misconduct. One way that happens is through so-called cooling-off periods. About one in five of them provide officers with a rigid delay before you can question them, uh, before you can ask them questions after allegations of misconduct. Critics say that time allows cops to get their story straight before being questioned. In my look at about 650 contracts, about 28% of them uh, provide officers with access to incriminating information before you can question them. Meaning cops can see things like video evidence and witness statements before they talk to investigators. Russian says these contracts also make it easy to hide officers past misconduct from both their bosses and you, the public. Uh, Many of them delete disciplinary history or make it such that supervisors can't use that disciplinary history in future determinations about the credibility of complaints or future decisions about discipline. And even when a cop is punished, the contracts include an appeals process that critics say protects them at all costs. You know, a lot of these contracts provide for arbitration on appeal. Um, Arbitration, which basically outsources the final decision-making authority for police discipline to a third party, a third party that's often selected in part by the police union or by the aggrieved individual, um, and that often results in places like Philadelphia and Denver in upwards of 60% of all terminated officers being rehired on appeal. And a nationwide look by the Washington Post found that at the country's biggest police departments, about a quarter of all police officers fired for misconduct 
are later reinstated after appeals. We've made it so difficult in some places to fire bad and dangerous officers, and we've done this in part by creating a police disciplinary appeals or arbitration process that often tilts in their favor. And ultimately, that's why people should care, because, you know, the next officer you encounter during a traffic stop, it could be one of those officers. It could be an officer that was fired and then ultimately rehired on appeal. And that's something that should worry everyone. So how do provisions like this make it into police contracts in the first place? Why would local governments agree to them? Well, according to Russian, when governments can't afford to meet union demands on things like higher salaries or better benefits, they give on things like discipline. So in places like Chicago and in San Antonio, cities who were budget-strapped could not meet the financial demands of the union during their collective bargaining negotiations. They instead offered concessions and disciplinary procedures. And once you grant those concessions, it becomes really hard over time to kind of pull them back. Police unions have also helped block specific reform efforts in recent years. For example, they lobbied against two bills in Congress. One would have restricted surplus military equipment to local law enforcement agencies, and the other was a push to end racial profiling. Neither made it anywhere. And in 2019, months before the killing of George Floyd, the mayor of Minneapolis banned a kind of police officer training that critics say promotes violence. But the local union enlisted a private company to do the training anyway. That union, the Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis, is led by Bob Kroll. He's called the recent protests against police brutality a terrorist movement. And he joined President Trump on stage at a rally last year. The respect that we have for law enforcement is unbound. It's unbound. Come up here, Bob, come up. When we're talking about police unions, regardless of where they are in the country, this one word used before police unions, and that is powerful, right? Do you think that that's an accurate adjective? Yeah, I would think it's accurate. I think it's accurate, um, but only because we allow it to be accurate. Unions only have the power that we give them. Um, and if we point to something like, say, the collective bargaining process and say, that's an example of unions exerting too much authority. The reality is, is that those collective bargaining agreements did not write themselves. Our political leaders signed off on those, right? So the blame does not just fall on police unions. The blame at least equally falls on political leaders, in my mind, who have made too many concessions. And good evening. We'd like to welcome you to another edition of Wake Up Memphis from Behind the Badge, brought to you. That is Michael Williams on his local radio show. He's the president of the Memphis Police Association, a union that represents about 3,000 active and retired officers in a city with one of the highest rates of violent crime in the nation. The whole thing about defunding the police, mm -hmm. you know, it's dangerous. Yeah. Let's on a recent episode of his show, he heard from listeners about the growing calls for reform after the killing of George Floyd. What citizens are crying for, which is money for youth development, money for community development, money for enhancing core services to the citizens of this great city. And there is nothing, nothing wrong with that. However, I think their priorities are misplaced. I wanted to ask Williams, who's one of the only black police union presidents, about some of the criticisms he and his colleagues around the country are facing and what it's like to lead a union right now. You are a native Memphian. 
born and raised there. And you have some really early memories about interactions with the police there. Yes. uh, My father was an activist at that particular time. I actually marched uh, with Martin Luther King. I was eight at the time. My first uh, interaction with the police uh, was in 1968 when they brought the dogs and the hoses down on the march in Main Street. Um, And on the way home, my father was confronted by a motorcycle uh, police officer, and it was not a very good uh, interaction. I was afraid for my dad that day. But that was also the day that I decided that I was going to be a police officer because I also understand that you have to uh, sometimes affect change from the inside and allow other people to do what they do on the outside. After a career in the military, Williams became a cop in 1999. When you first became a police officer, tell me what that was like. Were you, do you have to join a union? Was it a choice? No, it's definitely a choice. And it's definitely a good choice. If you're going to be in law enforcement, there are a couple of things you're going to need. You're going to need medical because running and jumping fences and driving squad cars and uh, possibly having to get into physical altercations with Uh, some of the criminal element, you're going to need medical, but you're also going to need legal. So we're here to represent police officers uh, that don't have a voice. When people talk about the unions and police unions in particular, Mm -hmm. there's a general perception that unions stand in the way of reforms, that the power of the Mm -hmm. unions and the power that they exert Mm -hmm. means it's harder to push through reforms. What do you say to that? Well, you know, I don't think that unions stand in the way. We don't necessarily make policy. The city of Memphis makes policy. The Memphis uh, police department director makes policy. And I know a lot of times they say, well, you know, major unions may lobby uh, for legislation and different things like that to be able to change or to set the tone. But everybody has the opportunity to lobby. You know, for some reason they want to set. I am a man. Being a police officer is my job. Let me ask you about this, Mr. Williams, this, the idea that police officers are private citizens just like everyone else. But when they're out there with a badge and with a gun, they're in a separate line of work. And if police officers should be treated exactly the same as every other private citizen, when private citizens don't have the kind of training that they have, right, don't have access to the union that they have, um, don't have the sworn oath behind them to protect and serve the public, if they're t- t- treated like everybody else, then where's the duty to comply? Why should any private citizen treat a police officer differently? Well, first of all, uh, they are deemed by most constitutions of states or cities or uh, charters uh, to be those enforcers of the law. There are a lot of good police officers and you may have bad apples. I tell everybody, I don't like all police officers. I became a police officer because I didn't like the police But at the same time, I can't discount the fact that uh, there are a lot of good individuals, hardworking young men and women that want to do the right thing to protect their communities. Let me me ask you about this bad apples argument. We've heard this a lot before. And when you look at the numbers, you know, of all the excessive force complaints that have ever been filed, something like 92 percent of them result in no consequence whatsoever. So how do you how do you reconcile that this this idea that the numbers show that there's very little accountability in the system? Well, and I don't know, because you can complain on anybody. Uh, I used to sit outside the dope boy's house in the ward that I worked. He would call and complain on me. 
He's complaining on me because the police is sitting outside his house and he can't sell drugs. You think 92% of the complaints are without merit? No. You know, I am not going to uh, sit here and say, I will be the first to tell you that even as the president of the police association, I have had incidences whereas I thought police were wrong. Uh, when I got pulled over or what have you. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and try to refute that argument that you think all of them are wrong. No, I don't think all of them are wrong. I I get it. I don't agree with what happened to Mr. Floyd. I thought it was atrocious, heinous. It's hard to see any man, black or white, uh, when you see someone stands on their neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and they're calling for their mother. That's wrong. As for what Williams would have done if the officers involved in George Floyd's killing had worked for the Memphis Police Department? Would I come out publicly and say uh, this individual uh, needs to be fired and, 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 and jump on the news? That is not what we do. That's not my job, okay, uh, because I do represent them. So that could also be a conflict of interest when it comes to my position. But at the same time, uh, I, I will definitely probably tell that young man, uh, you'd probably need to resign. And then I would probably also tell them that everybody's not intended to be the police. William says the pressure on police unions across the country has been mounting since Floyd's death. I've been bombarded with questions from all over. And it's kind of like, Jesus, now I'm sitting here defending myself and I, I haven't done anything. You, you know what I mean? But... Uh, because of the conduct of a few, uh, the individuals that are really trying to hold these cities together uh, are being put under scrutiny. And part of that scrutiny is about the perception that unions stand in the way of police reform. So I asked Williams about some of the major proposals on the table. First off, would he support a national standard for police use of force? Williams says yes, but... Anything that does not put an officer's life at risk, I can agree with. Uh, I think some of the reform that individuals want to do, they want to restrict too much. What about the idea of a national database for police misconduct so they can be tracked? I don't have a problem with that as well, as long as the information is not public, because a lot of times individuals will seek these police officers out. You don't want to put these officers' families at risk. But do you think maybe potential employers should have access to that so they can know if someone has had a previous complaint or misconduct filed against them? I know here in the city of Memphis, if if individuals are seeking employment somewhere else, uh, especially at another police department, they come and pull the personnel files that are on file here in the city of Memphis. But Williams acknowledges that even if you have access to those personnel files, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll have access to every complaint made against an officer. Only complaints that are upheld after an investigation can be seen by the public. Anybody complain, can complain on an officer at any time, but that's why you have internal affairs so that they can go ahead and investigate those cases. And what about another major issue that critics often point to, those so-called cooling off periods, the ones that give officers time before they're interviewed about misconduct complaints? In Memphis, they're allowed 48 hours, and in other places, it can be much longer. Would you be willing to get rid of that cooling off period and have an officer give an interview on the incident as soon as it happens? No, I would not. You cannot have officers 
give up their Fifth Amendment rights. We want them to do things that we don't want the citizens to do. And I know you're going to say, well, they're held to a higher standard because they're police officers and they have so much. Most definitely. But it does not negate the fact that they are human beings and they are individuals that still under this Constitution have rights. So what do you say to this idea that there's a perception that this is the time that officers get their story straight, that they come together with something that they know will be able to move forward and not exactly a true representation of what happened? Well, you know, people are going to assume what they want to assume. But if you're talking about an officer who may be involved in a critical incident, you want him to just go in there and just run his mouth without representation or without even thinking about what has just transpired. Officer involved shooting breaking tonight in South Memphis. Good evening. I'm Richard. Memphis isn't free of police misconduct controversy. In 2018, a Memphis police officer shot and critically wounded a black resident, sparking protests. And soon after, there were reports about some advice Williams was giving to officers in the union. You've urged officers in the union to not give statements to the state body that will investigate officer related shootings. I sure did. I'm sorry? I sure did. You sure did. Yes. Do you believe or do you agree that that feeds this cycle of mistrust that leads people to believe that the union's protecting officers who may have conducted misconduct or or done something they shouldn't have? No, uh, you're going to believe what you want to believe. But it is I am in a position to where it is my job to ensure that officers rights are protected as well. You want all of the criminals to have their constitutional rights. You want law-abiding citizens to have their constitutional rights. But hold up, stop. The police, you don't want them to have their constitutional rights. So do we want them to just uh, be a, a, a punching board or a target for any and everybody? They have to have a spokesman who is allowed the ability to be able to advocate for them. And that's, in my opinion, what the unions are for. Police unions have long fought to protect officers doing a dangerous job. But many argue that along the way, they've also fought reforms and the push for more accountability. Michael Williams is now joining the reform talks between protesters and lawmakers in Memphis. But there are thousands of union leaders across the country making their own decisions, whether to dig in and fight change or step in and be a part of it. To some degree, we've been here before. Police killings leading to outrage, leading to demands for change. But former officer Corey Pegues says this time is different. This is the first time in history we've seen this. I mean, the pandemic probably had something to do with it. Nobody don't have nothing to do but do a protest. But this is almost like the perfect storm. So this thing is not stopping. And the only way it's going to cool off just a little bit is by having some real meat and potatoes change. The unions, they have to come on board. They're archaic. They've been operating so long this way They don't want change. No one wants change. But we have to change with the times. This episode was produced by Sam Lane, Mike Fritz, and Vika Aronson, and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Production assistance from Bella Isaacs and Maya Lene Bura. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. 
Our thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, and James Williams. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all of our coverage on air and on our website, pbs.org newshour. Thanks for listening.